0: The following is brought to you by the Leave It In The Ring Podcast Network. All boxing, no filter.
1: Greetings and welcome to the Boxing Esquire Podcast. Welcome to another edition of the Boxing Esquire Podcast presented by The Ring and ringtv.com and distributed by the Leave It In The Ring Network. My guest on this episode is truly a legend in the sports law community, Mr. Jim Quinn. He's represented every major sports players union in labor disputes, including in the NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, and NHL. He's now of counsel at Bergen and Drophy after a long, illustrious run at Wild and uh, We discuss his new book, Don't Be Afraid to Win, How Free Agency Changed the Business of Pro Sports. We got into the labor history of the NBA and NFL and how each player's union achieved free agency. We also got into how salary caps got imposed in both leagues as a result of collective bargaining. And uh, this being a boxing podcast, we also talk about how the sport of boxing can be better organized to maximize its potential. Really great conversation. Hope you enjoy. So on this episode, it is my honor and privilege to have as my guest a man who's been described as a legal titan, and even Mr. Howard Cosell called him the Mighty Quinn. It's uh, my pleasure to welcome to the Boxing Esquire podcast, a legend in the sports and entertainment legal field, Mr. Jim Quinn. Welcome to the podcast. Well, um, it's great to be here, Kurt. <laughs> so uh, definitely want to talk to you about the book you just published, uh, Don't Be Afraid to Win, How Free Agency Changed the Business of Pro Sports. Just finished it. I highly recommend it to anyone interested in sports and the history of how we got to the current structures of of the four major sports: uh, NBA, NFL, MLB, NHL. Definitely of interest to the general sports fan. Uh, You know, I know a lot of attorneys listening to our podcast. You have to read it. Uh, You know, anyone interested in sports law, it's an absolute must read. So, uh, Jim, it's easily available on Amazon <laughs> and Barnes and & Noble. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I actually bought uh, I bought it on Kindle and then I, I bought a copy of Barnes & Noble, but unfortunately it didn't arrive before I, I'm here for the interview. But, uh, but, man, you're at the table, major figure in labor negotiations and litigation on behalf of the players and like all four major sports and beyond. Uh, when did the idea come to you uh, putting all these stories and, and the history of these negotiations in the book form?
0: No, probably about five or six years ago, I, I, it came to me that this was was an interesting story that ought to be told. How we got to be where we are, why why there is a a, a, uh, a bird exception to the <laughs> to the salary cap in basketball, and what what's uh, uh, what what are some of the other rules that. Quaintly got put together through negotiation. Uh, the, a franchise player. How did franchise players come into view, and what do they actually mean? And so, and thinking about it over time, there were lots of different stories that I thought uh, folks would be interested in, uh, whether or not they were lawyers, uh, just people that are interested in sports and particularly the history of sports. And uh, free agency has had such an enormous impact on uh, all four major sports in different ways, but uh, it's made, I think, uh, the major sports that much more fun to follow uh, even in the off season, as fans can uh, sit back and try to figure out how for their, uh, for their own fantasy football team where and when this player or that player is going to be playing uh, and uh, free agency just makes uh, most of the sports of interest for uh, 365 days a year rather than just the season itself. Absolutely. I,
1: I think at this point in time, you, you really have almost as much discussion about like off-season transactions and, and, and labor discussions and negotiations as you do uh, the actual
0: games on the field or on the court yeah you know, there's, I, 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 there's it, a lot of intrigue with fans it, 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 the fans you know, love it and, uh, and and I think it uh, has obviously been a huge benefit to the players themselves um, in in terms of uh, at the economics of the of the sports uh, but it's also helped the the uh, the leagues and the owners themselves in maintaining a high level of interest and the easiest way to to measure that is just looking at the value of the uh, for major sports leagues franchises today, uh, in football, it's three billion or so mm. on average. Uh, even lowly hockey is close to a billion dollars, uh, and in some instances, uh, multiple billion dollars for some of the the uh, more popular and uh, large market hockey teams. So uh, the world has changed uh, in enormous ways since. Uh, since this fight for free agency first began back in the late 60s and early 70s. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I just wanted to get into your background a little bit,
1: too. So you uh, you grew up in the suburbs of New York City in White Plains? In White Plains, New
0: York. Yep. <laughs> I was a proud graduate of Archbishop Stepanak High School, uh, and then I went to the University of Notre Dame, go Irish, <laughs> uh, and uh, then to law school at at Fordham uh, here in New York City, and, and I went to law, Actually, went to law school at night, and worked at a law firm during the day. Oh wow! Okay, that's interesting. That's interesting. Well, you know, and, and you've you've
1: managed to uh, you know uh, you know get to, to partner at, at Wow Gotchel and I, <laughs> you know, I, I, huge I did player. for uh,
0: for forty five yeah. years. I was uh, at Wild wow Gotchel, eventually leading there. Um, litigation group and trial of practice and uh, was one of the you know, members of the management committee for me- me- many years. It was a lot of fun but um, I'm glad I'm out of it now. <laughs> so you're here at Bergen and Drophy. Uh, Indeed. Litigation uh, firm. A litigation uh, boutique uh, firm here in New York. Also has an office in Houston. I've um, uh, changed, uh, changed my life a little bit doing a little bit more plaintiff's work. Uh, although when I was uh, in the sports world, or still in the sports world to some degree, uh, it was always as a plaintiff, which was a lot of fun, suing and torturing rich owners, <laughs> what could be better? <laughs> you also have a mediation practice, right, the year the year? Yeah, and it's, been, uh, it's, it's uh, interesting. It, and you're trying to solve problems instead of make problems, so uh, <laughs> uh, that's, that's been fun as well. Absolutely, absolutely.
1: Well, I wanted, you know, the, 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 this is a podcast primarily for boxing, but but I thought I'd like to to go through a couple of the major sports. I mean, it would be a five you know five day podcast if we went through every negotiation that you've done. But I thought the NBA and NFL were were absolute landmark uh, uh, accomplishments that 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 you were able to uh, to uh, well. I mean, let, let, let's just start with with the NBA and. and actually how the book started too. Um, you talk about in 1964, which be- before you started practicing law, but uh, about a strike at the NBA All-Star Game that was led by a 34-year-old lawyer named Larry Fleischer. Just uh, If you could tell us about uh, Larry Fleischer and his works for people who aren't
0: familiar sure. with him. Sure. Uh, he, he's a, you know, uh, a now long-forgotten uh, you know, name in sports, but at the time he, w- he became an icon not just as a, a labor leader, but also as one of the leading agents in uh, sports agents in basketball. Um, people focus you know, primarily on, on Marvin Miller in baseball as a, a great labor leader, and Marvin certainly was. I work with him as well, but Larry, uh, his, uh, w- while he's uh, uh, not on the sports pages anymore, he, he certainly was uh, a leader uh, in fighting first for free agency and and for uh, many other issues, important labor issues, some of which I'm sure we'll touch on. Um, but what was interesting about what happened back in 64, um, this was a, a time when the NBA was really at its infancy in terms of uh, popularity, and uh, as was the union that Larry had uh, helped form in the uh, late 50s and early 60s and at the time the players were simply asking for a modest pension plan that's all they really wanted Uh, and of course the owners were refusing and for the first time, and I tell this a little bit uh, in the book for the first time the NBA all-star game was actually going to be televised nationally on ABC Uh, and it was a Tuesday night and the players with Larry's uh, urging, uh, decided that unless the owners would agree to a pension plan, they simply wouldn't come out and play the game. And uh, there was a very tense situation with the players in the locker room. The game was supposed to start at 8 p.m. Uh, Eastern time. And sure enough, they, uh, they declined to come out onto the court. You can imagine what it was like for the announcers looking at an empty camera down at the empty court <laughs> uh, and uh, finally I think panic struck the owners knowing what an embarrassment would be this is the first time their big game was going to be televised and the players weren't going to come out and play the game and with uh, some a few minutes after eight o'clock uh, the Walter Kennedy the then commissioner of the NBA came to Fleischer and told him okay you win you, 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 got, you got a pension and uh at pres- precisely 8:22 uh p.m. eastern standard time the um the players came out and and, and that later became known as the 22 minute strike uh, the shortest strike in the history of 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 sports but also the first <laughs> got the ball rolling for sure got the ball
1: rolling <laughs> <laughs> um and and uh you know the, the the landmark case in in basketball is is uh, obviously the one where uh, Oscar Robertson was was uh, brought as a plaintiff. But I, I don't know if people know the origins of of the Robertson case. I don't. I mean, I didn't know as I as I began reading the book that this was actually a, a, a suit that was to to stop the ABA uh, NBA
0: merger. That's how it started. Uh, the uh, the ABA had come into existence in 1966 and 67 uh, and uh, was competing head to head for players with the NBA for several years. And obviously that had an enormous impact because finally it was competition for players and the salaries uh, in both leagues shot up, uh, uh, doubled uh, within a a matter of a couple of years. Uh, The ABA and the NBA realized that uh, this was going to cost them a lot of money they looked back at what had happened in, the, in, the, uh, in football a few years earlier where uh, the AFL and NFL had competed with each other but then ended up merging and getting uh, congressional uh, uh, law passed that allowed them to merge. Um, so the ABA and the NBA decided to try to do the same thing. Well, before um, they could get a, a law passed, uh, they announced that we're going to have a merger, and Fleischer, Larry, once again being a, a, a provocateur and leader, um, along with the then president of the NBA Players Association, the union, happened to be Oscar Robertson, who was obviously a leading superstar back in the, in the late 60s and early 70s. And they decided to file a lawsuit uh, to, to try to block the merger and join it uh, as a violation of the antitrust laws. And uh, they ran into court, and uh, sure enough, the judge agreed with the players that, in fact, it was a violation. He enjoined the, the merger, and as part of that lawsuit, almost as an afterthought, um, the the players uh, and the players' lawyers at Wild Gachaul, um, it added some claims that went to the free agency and reserve system that existed in the NBA. And suddenly the case, after a number of years, switched from a focus of uh, seeking to enjoin the merger uh, and became focused on the reserve clause and option clauses that prevented players and basketball players from uh, being able to negotiate with other teams after their contracts were up. And ultimately, and literally on the eve of trial the case had gone very well for the players on the eve of trial the nba and the players union settled and for the first time there was free agency in basketball um, and that settlement which became known as the oscar robertson settlement uh... lasted for a decade uh... and during that period of time there's additional negotiations that made the system uh... that much freer the players over time. One of the ironies was that a lot of people, even today, uh, focus on uh, the Curt Flood case in, base, in baseball, thinking that that was the, the uh, catalyst for bringing about free agency in, uh, in sports. In fact, Curt Flood lost that case in the, right. in the Supreme Court, and it wasn't until several years later uh, in an arbitration. Uh, known uh, for a player, a pitcher by the name, a Dodger pitcher by the name of Andy Messersmith, that in fact an arbitrator ruled that the option clause was uh, w- could not prevent players after the option was uh, exercised once to negotiate with other teams, and thus free agency uh, came into, uh, into being in baseball. Uh, and one of the ironies is that the Robert, Oscar Robertson settlement and the Andy Messersmith arbitration decision uh, were came down virtually simultaneously, so that um, free agency in basketball and baseball both came into the fore uh, in the mid nineteen seventies.
1: Yeah, listen, the, you know uh, the the book. Uh, absolutely details uh you know uh, all of the kind of you know thinking behind uh, the lawsuit and, and uh, the crazy things that went on in discovery um but one of the interesting things was uh the person who was on the opposite side of uh of the table from you, which
0: was a young uh well i, I don't know how young he was then but uh he he was uh, maybe a year or two older than me but but still pretty young and his name was David stern, who unfortunately is as many of your listeners know uh... just passed away recently uh... but he started out before he became well-known obviously as the nba commissioner he started out as a lawyer representing the owners in the oscar robertson case that was the first time that i uh... i, I met david and uh... he and i spent thirty odd years uh, on different sides um... but i came uh... I think we ultimately came to mutually respect each other and, and actually uh, almost like each other. Uh, he was a, he was he was a unique figure, and 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 one that uh, was uh, and made an enormous impact uh, in a favorable way for for the NBA. Absolutely,
1: absolutely. Um, Legend, You know, certainly as commissioner, you know, most credit him with, uh, you know, at least he was there, you know, as when the sport kind of, you know,
0: really went over the top in in popularity. Yeah, certainly in the beginning in the 80s when he became commissioner, one of the things that he recognized uh, in in a way that was different than a lot of people on the on the owner side was that uh, the importance of promoting and marketing individual players, particularly in basketball. Uh, and uh, as we've seen over the last several decades, that has led to the enormous popularity that the NBA um, lives with today. It didn't hurt that he had Magic and Bird to uh,
1: <laughs> come along and, at and, that and, time,
0: and, 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 and Michael Jordan a couple <laughs> of years later. Uh, but but the, uh, the the concept was there, and he promote, and he he understood it and he promoted it. Absolutely. Another.
1: Uh, Point that it comes up constantly in the book is pretty much the argument from the owners in just about every one of the sports, and that's the idea of, you know, they needed to keep these draconian rules in place, you know, to to ensure competitive balance. Yes, yeah. yeah.
0: I've heard that that phrase uh, in, has been ringing in my ears for four decades, uh, and 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 it was nonsense then, and it's nonsense today, uh, and we were actually uh, able to prove that in court, in front of a jury, in the early 1990s. Um, the, the idea, of course, is that, well, if the, the argument that the owners in all the sports they would make this invariably, well, if we had free agency, uh, all of the best players would flock, we used to call it the flocking theory, <laughs> they would flock to a few uh, uh, big markets or warm weather markets. Etc. And and uh, after a few years, all the teams would you know dry up and collapse, and the whole world would fall apart. It was nonsense, as I said back then, and it's uh, and it continues to be nonsense today. Although they don't push it that much anymore now, it's most, mostly just about money. Uh, but was it uh, when uh, what had happened was in football there was fighting over free agency back in the seventies. Uh, and, and and for a, re- a lot of reasons that I detail in the book, uh, the football players were never able to really attain any level of free agency uh, until finally in the late 1980s when Gene Upshaw, former great left guard for the Oakland Raiders and by then the uh, head of the executive director, the head of the football players union, uh, decided that the only way to uh, actually be able to sue and successfully obtain free agency was to decertify the union, literally blow the union up, uh, which would allow them to uh, get around uh, some of the labor defenses that the owners had raised. Uh, and uh, sure enough, in, in, uh, in the fall of 1989, Gene uh, uh, took the uh, leadership role of convincing the players and the player reps to actually vote to uh, decertify the unions or disclaim union status, which is the technical name. Um, And we brought a lawsuit uh, on behalf of eight individual players. Uh, The lead player was Freeman McNeil, which we always thought was ironic that his first name was Freeman. (laughs) Um, And uh, he was then a star running back for the New York Jets. And he and seven other players... Uh, brought a lawsuit that became known as the mcneil lawsuit we actually had a uh, a four month jury trial in uh... in minneapolis in front of an all-woman jury which was another irony uh... because the the future of the nfl was in the hands of these four wonderfully nice ladies from um uh, minnesota uh... they were all minnesota nice as you can imagine and um, the chief defense for the NFL was this so-called competitive balance nonsense. And uh, what we what we were able to show, both statistically and through uh, testimony, was that uh, once free agency, and we used both basketball and uh, baseball, since they had free agency as the examples, once free agency came into play, instead of there being dominance by one or two teams, the opposite happened and that uh, often uh, many of the small markets were able to be successful um, and get to the World Series or into the NBA championships. Remember that during a period of time before there was free agency, you had in baseball the Yankees, which uh, dominated uh, the uh, Major League Baseball for many, many years, because they were able to hold on to, and they had a lot of money, and they were holding on to their own players. And similarly, in in, in basketball, you had the dominance of the Celtics and also the Lakers. Um, and I think at one point we were able to show that uh, without free agency, those two teams uh, were able to be in the finals of the NBA championship uh, close to 80% of the time in the history of the league. So it was pretty clear when you look statistically at uh, the impact of free agency, it was actually much more beneficial to smaller market teams who uh, went, and to put it in, as some of the witnesses often testified to, if you're a lousy team uh, the, uh, and the only way you can get better is to get one draft picked every, every year, uh, you're going to be lousy for a long time. <laughs> uh, but if you have a free agency market that you can go into and actually obtain uh, other top talent you can get better a lot quicker. And that's what history has shown to have been the case once free agency came into play in all of the sports. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just even, you know, this past year,
1: I mean, if if this flocking theory was actually true, I mean, the Knicks might have actually signed a
0: decent uh, free agent. Yeah, no one (laughs) seems to want to flock to to at least... Uh, Manhattan. A few of them flocked over to Brooklyn, but that's, <laughs> that's right. not to Manhattan. <laughs>
1: well, interesting. You you brought up um, decertification because, uh, in fact,
0: didn't wasn't the the uh, the NBA players' union was actually the first to uh, well, we, yes. Although it was, and we were the first to to attempt it, and and uh, it was so effective uh, that when we th- and that was that was your idea. Now, yes, it, yes, I <laughs> completely guilty. Um, the, that we had had a stalemate in basketball in the late uh, 1980s um, because there was litigation, um, and uh, we, uh, rather than go through another four or five year fight as we had gone through in, in the 70s with the Robertson case, uh, we wanted to figure out a way to put pressure on the on the league uh, and reach a quick settlement. Uh, in the impasse that we had reached. And so I came up with the idea along with another uh, labor lawyer who actually was shocked that he was, I thought he was going to have a heart attack when I suggested that we, uh, in order to get around the owner's labor defense, uh, which basically said that uh, as long as you were a union, uh, you could not bring a lawsuit under the antitrust laws. um, If we simply decided not be a union anymore um, then how could they defend uh, under the labor defense and uh, and we we uh, decided that we would decertify the union now it turned out we didn't even know what the right name was for it It turned out it was uh, called a disclaimer but notwithstanding that we got uh, a we filled out a little form and we had all the players in the NBA uh, Players' Association signed the form, basically saying, "I hereby uh, direct that the union be decertified. I no longer want to be represented by a collective bargaining agent." And we had a, everybody sign it. And we went to the NBA, to David Stern, and said, "Listen, if you don't, uh, if you, if, you, if we can't reach an agreement uh, quickly, we are going to blow the union up." Uh, and literally, within days, we reached the settlement because they were afraid they couldn 't defend their uh, uh, particularly the, the the salary cap which had been by that time right. put into, talk about that yeah uh, put into effect they couldn 't defend that uh, under the antitrust laws it was obviously price fixing and so uh, absent the uh, agreement by the union, um, we would be able to uh, to basically get rid of it they were Terribly nervous about that, and we ultimately negotiated a, uh, a settlement that we could both live with.
1: Right. I mean, it's it's, it's really interesting because once once free agency uh, came about, of course, you know it, it was great for players um, and great for owners, but as you know, owners not being able to uh, contain themselves and being a little ultra competitive, um, owners got themselves into trouble by overspending and so on. So. Um, as you point out in the in in the book, uh, you know, uh, it was in the '80s in, in basketball that uh, basically, you know, the commissioner came to you with this idea, and everyone was like, "Hell no!" The salary cap, you know, we just fought for free agency. Why are we going to cap, you know, player salaries? So tell how the, you know
0: give tell tell people. Well, about the I, cap they, came they, about. They, they, uh, what had happened was uh, after the Robinson Agreement came into effect, uh, the fr- uh, free agency. Uh, did uh, increase salaries enormously uh, in a very short period of time because they've been held down for so long, right. uh, and uh, the when that occurred at the same time, the NBA, for a variety of other reasons, uh, was losing a little bit of its of its uh, uh, popularity in a number of cities. They had probably expanded too quickly. They had added the four teams from the. ABA, which none of which were doing particularly well, um, and there was an issue with, uh, frankly, with cocaine uh, among some of the younger players. So there was the reputation of the league was beginning to be tarnished. So uh, in the early eighties, um, it turned out, and, and this is when we knew that the NBA was actually in trouble. They offered to show us their financials. For years, they had always said. You know they would cry poor, and then we'd say, "Well, okay, we'll show us our financials." They say, "No, no, no, we can't do that." Well, at a meeting at the Waldorf Astoria and uh, negotiations in in the fall of 1982, David Stern was there with the set set of books, and he showed them across the table and said, "See, you can see our financials. This is how bad we are." And sure enough, we did look at the their uh, financials. We had brought in an accounting firm to look over to make sure that uh, they, they weren't uh, uh, trying to get one by us. And uh, we concluded, based on the review, that in fact there were at least a half dozen teams that were on the brink, if not in, virtually in bankruptcy. Uh, we were concerned that we would lose a, uh, a number of, of player spots uh, and uh, if teams were to go bust. Uh, and also, frankly, if a number of teams began to go bust, that would have a seriously negative impact on the future of the league. And ultimately, uh, in the, in this context, the Stern and, and, uh, the owner group proposed the salary cap notion. And originally we, we said, no way, you know, that's exactly what you just said. Kurt, we said, well, Hey, we just fought for free agency. Now we're going to give it back. And, uh, we negotiated over that for months, um, and finally, um, Larry Fleischer uh, was leading negotiations. I was, you know, I guess the number two. Um, we sat down among ourselves with Bob Lanier, who was the then president of the of the uh, of the union, the you know uh, Hall of Fame center from the Pistons and the Milwaukee Bucks, and. Um, we had long discussions about it, and finally we decided that if we could work out a deal where uh, we would be able to share in the upside of the league, that is, as revenues would increase, the salary cap would go up, um, and if we could get certain guarantees on the, on the, on the low side to make sure that uh, salaries couldn't go down in any significant way, um, that, that we would consider uh, agreeing to a salary cap and eventually after many long nights and and, and uh, stale coffee cups we were uh, we were able to uh, to agree on the salary cap the first salary cap uh for those of you who would might have an interest was uh was actually uh 3.8 million dollars that was per team that was the salary cap <laughs> uh that you know is virtually the minimum salary in the NBA now and the average salary Per player today is $10 million, uh, close to $10 million and I believe the salary cap is approaching if not uh, surpassing $100 million a team. So things have, have, um, have gone uh, well for the owners and well for the players obviously by tying uh, the salary cap to revenues uh, that ensured that uh, there would be an enormous amount of revenue that would be shared by the players.
1: So I mean uh, to that point in in labor negotiations I mean I'm sh- I'm sure the subject came up but like wage share like how much you know percentage of revenues goes to to the players and how much goes to the owners I mean obviously once you have a cap and once you see the financials you know you can you can kind of go from there but you know to that point, had had there been any discussions about? Well,
0: Asian? you know, it, 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 that's an interesting question, Kurt. It, it, in, in the early days, the answer was no. Uh, I mean, the real focus at, at the beginning uh, and, and in, in through the 70s and 80s, and, and, and really into the 90s, was there's a focus on maintaining a level of free agency. Um, and the first time that that notion of figuring out, you know, who's getting what percentage. Uh, the first time it really came up uh, was in football when we were doing the salary cap uh, negotiations in the wake of, of the McNeil trial victory uh, and what became known as the White Settlement Agreement. Um, and it was at that point when we were negotiating we we looked back at what the percentages were uh, previously and and Knowing that we, went, we wanted to significantly increase what the player's share would be, um, we, we, we uh, agreed to a salary cap only if we got a certain percentage of revenue. right And right. so and, and, and that was really the first time it was tied to uh, a specific uh, collective bargaining um, uh, provisions uh, in the past you sort of had a we had a notion of what it was uh... but it wasn't something that became the focus now since then the uh... the split really has uh, has become uh, certainly in the in the twenty first century uh... the split became uh, a major focus if not the only focus and the trade-off was we had to make sure that uh, free agency was preserved in uh... as much uh, freedom is possible for the players, and so that's that's where the balance has, uh, changed uh, coming into the uh, in the last decade or more. Right, right. Yeah, it seems interesting because initially,
1: um, and I guess maybe as, as kind of you know reparations for, for having held down wages so long and, and prevented free agency, um, the players you know definitely got the lion's share. We did, no question. Um, and as the years have gone by, it seems like the league is just chipping away and chipping away, or the leagues, I should say.
0: It's almost we're almost at fifty-fifty, yeah, 50 in all four, and, and, and pretty much. Please. That's that's what's occurred over time. Um, and uh, you know, we had a huge fight about that in football in, in the last round uh, in, in terms of what the percentages would be. Uh, I think that'll probably be a focus again in football. Uh, in, in obviously in baseball it's less of a, a focus they have other issues but it's less of a focus because they don't have a salary cap right so you 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 don't focus as much on relative percentages um although i'm sure you know both sides know what the percentages are right. um the but i think that it would it will no doubt be a focus in in football coming up
1: absolutely absolutely and uh i guess you know you you alluded to this at the top but um just you want know, just so people know in that in that negotiation, I guess uh, in in the early to mid '80s when when the cap came about, um, the Larry Bird exception. What is the Larry Bird <laughs> exception?
0: Well, what, what's <laughs> interesting, which is around still around today, it's right? still around today. Uh, that basically is to put it very simply, it, it's the exception to the cap that allows a team to sign its own free agent. Uh, irrespective of what the cap is now, how that came about is uh, that's generally think, the
1: best player though, or, or they can only designate one. No, player you.
0: any and you player can sign the that's whole on, roster. And, and if, have, if, if it's your free agent, you can pay him anything you want. Wow, okay. um, and exceed the cap and exceed the cap. And that was that what's interesting about that exception is that this was not something that we bargained for it was something that uh that the owners insisted on and how it came about was because when we were doing the salary cap in 1982 that one of the uh, lead negotiators I mean, obviously david stern was a you know a lead negotiator but one of the lead negotiators on the owner side was a guy who was about to buy the boston celtics and at that time of course larry bird was the you know celtic superstar and uh, when we got to, towards the end of the negotiations, the uh, Celtic, uh, would-be Celtic owner, whose name I'm now forgetting on, huh, um, insisted that he had to have the ability to, Bird was about to become a free agent, uh, he had to have the ability to sign Larry Bird regardless of what the cap was. Right, And we, of course, looked at each other and said, Sure <laughs> exactly <laughs> fine fine with us uh, and uh, and that's how the larry bird and and not only the bird exception, but some of the other exceptions that were uh, ultimately negotiated, for example, for a traded player and uh, there's several others uh that and since have been have been negotiated but um, the mid level you know, uh, those those <laughs> you know uh, came in after you know in the, in the decades that where, where things got to be done, where, you know, the, the focus was on creating, like, the IRS. And the and just as a as an aside, when we did the original SARA cap, the entire cap, as drafted by, originally by the legal lawyers and then with, with me, uh, was four and a half pages long. <laughs> it's now 120 pages long. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's crazy. Um,
1: and it's funny, too, what you relate in the book is that, you know, owners and you know across sports are very similar in that. Like in football, you know, oh, they, they didn't want to do things like basketball, but they basically said the same thing. Absolutely, <laughs> like this Denver's owner is just like, well, I want to be able to sign John Elway. That's correct. So we <laughs> got to have a franchise player, <laughs> That's right? Which is essentially I mean, it's just, it's just the bird just, exception. It's a bird
0: exception in, in a different
1: form. <laughs> right. Correct. <Yeah. Right. laughs> That's interesting. Now, you know, you you made a point. I mean. One of the things that that you know, and, and it was, it'd be no secret to the owners negotiating. But yeah, you want to keep things on on the player side.
0: You want to keep the cap soft as opposed, yeah. as opposed and, to and a hard. Yeah, and obviously in, in in basketball, with all the exceptions, it's it is a quote soft cap. Now the owners in, in the NBA uh, believed that they were getting a hard cap, uh, except and I tell the story. It, it's a, I'll just give the executive summary, but. And when we were negotiating the uh, salary cap in the, in the NFL, um, they were insisting on a hard cap. and you know, We ultimately agreed as long as we could get the percentage we wanted. But during those negotiations, um, the issue of uh, salary bonuses came up and, um, and how they were to be allocated uh, over the years of the, of the collective bargaining agreement. Uh, in terms of the salary cap right. and they uh th- the other side the NFL insisted that the they wanted the the bonuses to be allocated uh over the course of the contract so that for example if a uh, player was going to get a 5 million dollar bonus uh that in terms of counting it against the cap it would only be count- it would be counted 1 million for the next 5 years now, what that meant was the player was actually getting the five million dollars in year one, like up front, yeah, up front. And so, uh, just by simple math, if enough players were getting bonuses in a given year, up by definition, that you would be over the cap, right, right. And uh, and so it, it became known as cash over cap. And when they realized this after uh, the first several years, the Many of the teams were by, by numerically over the cap because they were spending more than the cap in a given year. They came back to us, and I said, well, you you tricked us. and, and uh, you, you know, this isn't what we bargained for. And we said, yes, it is. You insisted on that submission. And we knew right away when they proposed it that it was going to be good for the players. Uh, but we pretended for a week or so to not agree. <laughs> that's hilarious. And ultimately, we did agree and then they, when, they, when they tried to come back several years later and take it back, we said, no way. It's, <laughs> that's in the agreement and staying in the agreement. And it is still in the agreement today.
1: It's funny. Uh, I thought some of the, the stories were pretty funny about you know when, when you initially had you, like you said, it's, it's a four-page salary cap. No one had in, in sports had ever dealt with anything like this. So you know, Larry Fleischer being Larry Fleischer, you know, is, is always going to try and, you know, poke holes and get around and get over. And he was a very clever man. (laughs) (laughs) So finding holes in the cap, I thought, um, what was interesting, you, you brought up the example of David Thompson, where, you know, basically the, the the Sonics, you know, had him superstar player. And, uh, you know, they're, they're trying to figure out a way to to maximize, you know, their roster and get the best players. And you've got to shell out money for that. So they basically signed all of they filled up all their roster spots and then re-signed Thompson so that they were like way over the cap.
0: That's correct. <laughs> and, the, and, the <laughs> NBA and the NBA, NBA protests they, like, oh, this is how it's they supposed they to work. Cried, they cried <laughs> foul. And, and we said, what do you mean? That was the whole point. You know, the Larry Bird exception. They they obviously had not uh, focused on the fact that timing would uh, would impact uh, the uh, the way you could go about uh, signing your players and uh, and they went they just went crazy and, and said you you cheated us and you did all kinds of, and we said and we looked at them and said what are you talking about this this is the deal uh, and and ultimately there was an arbitration and we won. Uh, eventually, we we renegotiate certain parts of it to make it a little less draconian, uh, draconian from the owner's standpoint. But even today, it still exists. You can sign your own player to any number, and you don't right. have to do it in any order. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, th- there was a case with uh, Albert King where uh, you know eventually uh, it was found that, was that you were circumventing. You know that, that was a bridge too far. <laughs> we, you know, that, Larry, in his in his creativity, had finally uh, come up with a contract that, that uh, in order to get around the salary cap, that basically uh, got spread out over a bunch of years. and, and uh, they challenged it, and this time they challenged it in in a, in a special master proceeding, which was a different kind of proceeding uh, under the uh, under the settlement, the Robertson Settlement Agreement. Uh, which said that you couldn't enter into contracts that were intended to circumvent the cap. And uh, I think anybody, a three year old, could figure out that this was intended to circ- circumvent the cap. <laughs> Notwithstanding that, we won at the special master level, but uh, I remember being in court in front of what we became known as the basketball judge, Judge Robert Carter, um, who had overseen the settlement for many years. And I walked in one day and, uh, to defend this Albert King uh, contract, and after a couple of minutes, he looked at me, and I'll never forget. He looked at me and he said, "Mr. Quinn, you've got to be kidding." <laughs> and I knew that uh, that was uh, not, it, Things were not going to go well, <laughs> and it didn't. He reversed, and and we had. Uh, we learned our lesson.
1: Does <laughs> that still come into to play today, or, or have the collective bargaining agreements over the years kind of changed it up? I mean, can you still object? Can someone object, the NBA object to?
0: Yeah. Is uh, a yes. violation of the Robertson agreement? Uh, well, not in the Robertson agreement because there have been sub- subsequent agreements. But, sure. Uh, yeah, they can, there are still provisions that, that uh, they can object to, and it will end up in arbitration. Gotcha, gotcha.
1: So yeah, I definitely wanted to get to, to football a little bit and, and, and talk specifically about a few of the cases there, um, because it, you know it's really interesting as you read the book. I mean, just you know the legal maneuvers and then the counter maneuvers, and then you know obviously someone had done like uh, some some really good uh, research on the NFL side to eventually uh, combat the um, the decertification uh, right. trump card. <laughs> But uh, yeah, that, that I, I forget which case that came up in. But um, yeah, at a certain because because basically it was you you would bargain as a union, and then you know threaten decertification, um, you know, it, you know or, or, or they would you know, lock you out and so on, and then you threaten decertification, and that was pretty much.
0: Yeah, you know, I think what 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 you know as uh, as the world changed and the world turned. Um, they began in the late 90s, they, I'm using as the, you know, the uh, generic they being the owners in different sports, uh, began to realize that that, that their leverage was in locking the players out, right? um, Rather than, for example, when we were uh, in football, when we were doing the McNeil case, the players are not locked out. We were actually litigating... And playing at the same time, right. so the players were being play- paid, right. and we were, you know, so the, the leverage there was ultimately on the, on the players' side. Um, but beginning in the mid nineties, and then uh, certainly in the in the example of the year long lockout in hockey, the uh, the owners began to recognize that by threatening to or actually locking out, they would um, they would uh, gain the leverage because. Uh, the reality is it's very difficult for players uh, who have short careers to uh, give up a whole season as right. they did in hockey. Um, and, uh, and so um, that became the, the new tactic to overcome uh, our antitrust threats. Uh, so uh, that ultimately culminated in, the ninth, in 2011, uh, the last big fight in football, when the owners locked the players out we did decertify uh, and we sought to enjoin the lockout uh, because we were no longer a union and in fact the district court uh, in, Min- in Minnesota Judge Nelson did in fact enjoin the lockout and uh, the the League then appealed to the Eighth Circuit, and I think this is what you're referring right, to. Right, right. Uh, and uh, and argued that uh, the arcane, something called the Norris LaGuardia Act, uh, which was passed back in the 1930s, and was passed really to protect uh, player, uh, employees who wanted to unionize, and part of the language in, the, in that Norris-Lagordi Act talked about uh, in the context of a labor dispute, uh, in the context of a labor dispute, that uh, you could not have uh, issue injunctions. Now, it was pretty clear when you looked at the context uh, and the legislative history of the Norris-Lagordi Act that that, uh, that uh, provision was intended to protect players. Or uh, players and player employees to uh, to form a union, uh, but the uh, cleverly uh, the NFL argued, well, uh, the language is is ambivalent, and uh, and the, and it could also uh, it should also apply here. And I won't get into the technical details, but ultimately, the Eighth Circuit, which was um, uh, made up of two. Uh, right wing Bush appointees um, um, uh, found in in favor of the the league, although they did did say that uh, this would not apply to players who were not under contract, that is free agents or rookies. Uh, And that uh, free agents and rookies could still uh, at least conceivably enjoy a lockout. Um, and that's basically where the law has been left uh, since, uh, since 2011. So we'll see. Who knows what's going to happen in the next uh, round of negotiations, whether it's in football or baseball or hockey. What, uh, a lot of it's going to depend on how outrageous the owner's demands are, uh, right. and uh, we'll see what happens. I, I, I suspect that uh, because of the sheer amount of money involved, um, now, on both of both sides, that uh, it's more likely than not that they'll reach an agreement, not unlike what happened a couple of years ago in basketball, where uh, although there were you know, some tough negotiations, ultimately the uh, players and the owners were able to agree uh, because it was a very big pie to, to split.
1: Right, right, yeah, and and at this point, you would think too. Pretty much, I mean, well, I mean, you're tweaking things here and there, but I mean, most of the major kind of issues
0: have been uh, hashed out. Yeah, you know, maybe I, I, there's think, like I think new revenue it's, streams it's, coming in. Yes, I, I think you know the the, the, the the notion that would that there would be some significant change in the structures in any of these sports at this stage, given the the, uh, uh, the enormous amount of revenue that's being generated. Uh, it's hard to see that that would occur. I, anything's possible, but it uh, doesn't seem likely. Right, right, right. Now it's interesting. You know, as as I was reading the book,
1: uh, you know, um, and and this has come up um, in you know my kind of area of interest, combat sports. Yeah, because uh, you don't have. It's not a there. There's no league, um, and and in certainly in mixed martial arts, you have one kind of dominant. Entity sure. in the UFC and yep. it's it's a one entity. You know, it's not teams, it's just one entity. Um, so you know the, the question would be if if you're organizing the athletes, the, the, the fighters in that sport, you know, does it make sense to try and unionize? I mean, obviously, I think the UFC would, would fight it and say these guys aren't employees. Right, they'll say they're
0: independent contractors.
1: Right, right. It <coughs> makes more sense to have an association, which when you decertified you, the, uh, the players from, from the league sports became an association, trade Correct. association.
0: Yeah. Uh, you know, we actually looked at this, I had some discussions with some of the folks involved, some of the, on the players' side um, and I, I believe there is some litigation that, uh, was filed sometime in the last couple of years, uh, asserting antitrust claims on behalf of s- some UFC fighters, uh, against, uh, against the UFC. I don't know the current status of that. Um, my own view would be that, um, I think that the UFC has, uh, some vulnerability uh, because they've gone about, you know, sort of snatching up all their, con- uh, potential competitors and there's at least, a, you know, a attempt to monopolize argument that might, uh, exist. There's also a possibility of a section one, you know, conspiracy type claim because of their, their, uh, arrangements with some of the, uh, uh, smaller venues and so forth. Um, uh. But it it'd be a tough fight and and UFC I'm sure would fight and and to the extent I understand that there is litigation are certainly fighting like crazy um because they do have a a monopolist a monopolistic hold on the on the sport right now
1: right 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 yeah i think I remember seeing something in the in the uh on the net something where where you know at, at a certain point you were working with was the m a or the m
0: m a a a yeah yeah <laughs> we looked at some of the issues but uh, uh, so far uh nothing's come but right right right
1: right right um, interesting yeah i mean the one the one statement you made, and I thought this was interesting was that uh the primary focus would be achieving three core goals substantially increasing ufc fighter pay to 50 percent, right which is where the the other sports are pretty much at 50 percent that's what you
0: that certainly would be a reasonable goal
1: right yeah. and i i think it's come out in the litigation that that the the fighter pay the wage share right now is somewhere you know either around 20 percent yeah or it's very 20%. small <laughs>
0: it's very small
1: no question about that you know, uh, and and one of the things you oh yeah, securing all, all encompassing uh, long term benefits. Yeah, and then that was something that that you guys you know that was the initial
0: kind of yeah. Thing. I mean, that was a big fight in the beginning, and obviously, in some to some degree, it's it continues to be uh, in a, a lot of the sports, particularly football. You, you know, you want to have long term health coverage uh, for the rest of their lives. I mean, given the uh, what has now come out in, in terms of. The issues with concussions and so
1: forth. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's interesting because that comes up in boxing as well. I would think. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. I mean, the CTE tests initially mm-hmm. it, it, it focused on boxers because yeah. they were you right. know you could see you know guys like Ali and sure. so on. You could see it was very readily apparent yeah. that, that 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 they were suffering. But uh, yeah, the concept of pensions has been has been thrown around quite a bit in in, in boxing. I mean, but without that like encompassing league and and having things further, I mean, how would you even? Well,
0: have- it's it's com- it's very complicated, and you know, particularly in boxing. Putting aside the UFC, which is you you could conceivably figure something out because you had one big en- entity. It's a lot more difficult in uh, in boxing per se because you have all the different promoters. There's not really a there's not a league right. per se right. who. How would you set up the pension program right. uh, I think it would be very, it would it would be i don't think I, I, not to say it's not doable I think if you know smart people could sit down and probably figure out a way one way would be to uh, to set aside you know a certain percentage of purses that would go into a pen into a pension plan for fighters who fought a certain number of fights i mean you 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 could you could come up with a system right um if you wanted to and and but the promoters uh, and the boxes would have to come together with uh with some ideas
1: right 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 yeah that's it 's funny because just you know thinking about antitrust and, and and looking at all the issues uh in your book, you know one of the big things that really drove up wages in the sports was competition absolutely when you had a you know uh you know uh with be it in basketball with the a b a and the n b a uh, the AFL, AFL NFL, NFL. NFL yeah. Yeah. even the WHA, yeah, and the
0: Yeah, the WHA, for those of you who don't remember, was the World <laughs> Hockey Association, which existed for eight or nine years in competition with the NHL. And during that period of time, uh, uh, hockey salaries uh, skyrocketed. Right, right, right. I mean, with
1: boxing, you have plenty of competition. That's the thing. Yes. Right now, there's there's four networks, like paying tens of millions of dollars for the sport, um, one of which is paying hundreds of millions of dollars mm-hmm. to zone. Um, you know, it's a boxer's market right now. I mean, you know, I need yeah. to get back and start signing more fighters because <laughs> there's, there's a, it's a lot of money, you know. And they're talking about, you know, uh, you know purses are a little inflated now because of this competition. And, and as far as wage share goes, I mean, one thing that's come out in the UFC lawsuit, they – they called Top Rank and, and, and Golden Boy in and, and got their records and found out that, that fighters are making over 60 percent. Really? Parties. That's it. That, OK. Yeah. yeah. right. So they're doing very well. Um, the problem is, you know, the one thing you don't have is, is the fans aren't satisfied because you don't have the best fighting the best. You don't have a, an overarching, you know, governing body to kind of. Bring yeah, it, it is.
0: It, it is confusing, I think, to a lot of fans. Uh, it, 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 I Ironically, uh, you know, the UFC does have sort of an overarching way of trying to put together matches that that fans can focus on, whereas in, in, in boxing, it seems to be a lot more haphazard. Right, right, right. Um,
1: I guess in the last few years, there has been an organization sprouted up called the World Boxing Super Series. They invite the best fighters in, like— mm-hmm. Certain weight classes, uh, they invite the best fighters, kind of whoever comes and, and agrees to it, they they have a tournament. And it's it's been great. It really has been right. great. seems like it would be a model for the sport. Um, the problem is thus far the major promoters, Top Rank, uh, PBC, the Premier Boxing yes. Champions, Al Hayman's organization, and a Golden Boy, they've avoided uh, entering their fighters in it. So... I mean, as someone who's—I mean, this is a little outside of your purview—but as someone who's kind of had a, some
0: experience of hurting well, cats, I mean, I could see because, because getting them to some, cooperate cause with I'm each a, other, because I'm a troublemaker, I could <laughs> see that, that, at least arguably, if some if if some uh, uh, group wanted to look into that seriously as to whether or not, in fact, those leading promoters were uh, acting uh, together. Uh, and and uh, the other, of course, argued, "Well, we're just we we're, we're not acting together; we're just acting in our own self-interest." Um, that would be a question of fact uh, that somebody would have to uh, uh, ultimately decide as to whether or not they were acting in concert and uh, whether or not, in so doing, they were impacting um, competition in the in the in the boxing world.
1: Right. 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 Yeah, it, it, it's such a dilemma because if you know, in in sports, you want to see the best fighting the best, and you want to see cooperation amongst the right the the promoters, um, and they're not quite franchises, but they do have athletes under contract, sure. so they're kind of you know yeah. quasi franchises. Yeah, and I would think just if they cooperated more and put on the best fights, you'd see their franchise values go up. Mm-hmm. I would think that would be some incentive. Um, but there's a, there's also you know you see individual sports like tennis and golf where the players have kind of organized their own. They organize uh, themselves. Yeah, yeah. associations right. in in association with you know tournament orga- or organizers. Right. And, you know, and they've they've raised the level of their, their their sport. I mean, tennis was you know it was a, until they organized and and created the tour, it was a disaster. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I mean, you know, do you think like a, a golf or a tennis style structure would would, would, would suit? Probably
0: it? more so than you know a, le- a pure league uh, right. structure. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably, uh, but then again, it, it will require you know some group of, of boxers. Working with the promoters to right. come up with a program right. where uh, I mean you could you could see um, uh, if if the, the folks were willing to to do it uh, of creating a, a tour in and of itself right. of of competitions uh, you know in different cities um, that um, would uh, have you know the, the organization that you mentioned before would be. Uh, bring in Super uh, Series, yeah. Uh, bring in, you know, the welterweights or, right. you know, lightweights, whatever the, um, mm. the, the uh, uh, right uh, group would be, and, and have them fighting in Madison Square Garden for, you know, a week or whatever. And among the, getting all of them, the top uh, uh, players, uh, fighters in a particular uh, weight yeah. class uh, fighting against each other. I think you, you would be able to generate a lot, of, a lot of interest and a lot of money. Right,
1: right. That, I mean, the money's out there now, it just seems yeah. like, you know, I mean, right. with, with all of... And that was, that was one more thing I wanted to kind of to t- talk to you about. I mean, you made a great <clears> point in the book that, you know, I mean, it's pretty obvious that, that the revenues, the vast majority of revenues for these um, sports, the team sports, come from television, no broadcast revenues. Yeah. And the explosion of cable television... You
0: said was 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 basically what created competition amongst, um, oh, market, broadcast networks. yeah, sure, because then broadcast networks then had to pay more money to get the the you know the, the uh, certainly for example they they needed to make sure that they got uh, the playoffs in various sports right uh, and um, and they it kind of feeds on each other uh, I think one of the things that and I think it's probably a true maybe more so in boxing than in most sports. Is a given now this enormous number of new uh, outlets, uh, whether it's Apple TV or whatever. You know, I guess NBC is putting one streaming with their their Peacock network, which is right. going to start soon. Uh, all of these are desperate for content, right? And uh, and live sporting events uh, remains uh, one of the few. Uh, types of content that uh, people want to watch because it's live, right? Um, and uh, you know, I would think that, that uh, boxing and, for that matter, the UFC uh, have more and more opportunity uh, over the you know in the in the near term with uh, all of these new outlets looking for uh, looking for content. Right,
1: absolutely. Content is king right now. Yeah. <laughs> so last question, um, in the book, uh, the NHL uh, asked you uh, and a colleague of yours to look at their sport and make some suggested changes on improving it, and uh, they ended up actually implementing uh, some of the changes <laughs> with, the, with, the, with the Zamboni and uh, changing the name of the divisions. Um, what changes would you suggest to the powers that be in boxing if, if you were asked to? Uh, well,
0: I think we've touched on some of them. Right. The um, the reality is that um, because right now it is so haphazard, you know, there's an occasional great fight that people are willing to pay spend, spend fifty or sixty dollars or whatever more to uh, to see on pay per view, uh, but uh, the lack of organization, I think. Uh, is hurting the sport in a significant way. Right. Uh, you know, I don't have to tell you to the throwbacks of boxing at one time, along with, you know, horse racing and college football were the were the three biggest sports in America right. for many years. Right. Um, and uh, that is obviously no longer true. Boxing is probably in sixth or seventh now. Right. Uh, but there's no reason why with better organization they couldn't, Particularly with all the outlets that exist today, that they wouldn't be able to uh, climb their way back up.
1: Right, it's you know fights don't lead to fights. I think that's one of the biggest problems
0: in the sport to just kind of random happenings. That's why I say it's it's haphazard. Now, you know there was back in the day, at least in the heavyweight division, um, there was uh, because of the the whole concept of the you know uh, the the Frazier Ali. You were, you are, or Ali. There was, there were ways to make the excitement um, uh, and the interest uh, be, because fights would lead to fights. Right. Uh, but you don't see that in the same way now.
1: Right. Yeah, that's what i was saying. I love this world boxing super series because you know, like you said, you know, networks with the team sports, they're fighting to get the playoffs. They're fighting you know, to get that end of year. Absolutely. best playing the best to determine the champion.
0: They're paying an enormous amount of money for, those, for, the, for the, the rights to uh, the, uh, the championship series, whatever it may be, whether it's the World Series, you know, the playoffs in football or uh, in basketball or even in hockey. That's where all the money is.
1: Right, right. And, and to me, the tournament concept for boxing, I, I love the fact, you know, if you can get like the, the guys in the top 10 to, you know, fight every couple of years in, in a tournament where, you know, you, you build the story, you've got the quarterfinals then the semifinals. Yeah. And then by the time you that's a huge fight, no matter what weight division there's,
0: there's, it is, <laughs> there's, there's, no, there's no question about it. I, I mean, and, and it's worked in tennis right. um, and, uh, and, and it works in golf. Right. Um, they, it's it's a little different, but it certainly could be organized in, in boxing, in in a somewhat similar way. Right. Right. Right.
1: Well Jim, I really appreciate your time. Uh you know, people definitely go out and get uh Don't Be Afraid to Win, How Free Agency Changed the Business of Pro Sports. It's an excellent, excellent, excellent book. Um there were things in it that, that we didn't touch on here, but it's really funny in parts two. <laughs> we won't
0: even mention the Donald Trump part.
1: <laughs> the Donald Trump part, that's right. I mean you know, we touched on mostly, you know, football, basketball here, but there's there's you know, there was soccer leagues. Yeah. Right? Yep. Uh, You know, baseball, uh, hockey, um, you know, and and a couple of the contract provisions, which I won't mention on this podcast, uh, that that uh, you discovered in depositions Mm -hmm. were pretty amusing. (laughs) So, yeah, Jim, I really appreciate your time. It was great. Thanks, Kurt. Thank you. And that will do it for another edition of the Boxing Esquire podcast presented by The Ring and ringtv.com and distributed by the Leave It in the Ring Network really like to thank Jim Quinn for taking the time out to speak with me uh, always a pleasure talking to him he's such a fountain of knowledge um and I definitely encourage you to uh, to go out and get the book don't be afraid to win um, if you like the podcast please leave a comment or a rating on iTunes Spotify Stitcher Audio Boom, SoundCloud or wherever you access the Boxing Esquire podcast I really appreciate it as it helps new listeners find the podcast and also do not forget to check out my companion piece to this podcast on ringtv.com that features quotes and background on my interview with Jim. And until next time, so long, everybody.